I want to thank everybody who was involved in um, getting me here, Yusuf and, and, and Nahid and others. I've been so looking forward to both the visit and the talk tonight. Um, and I'm going to start off with a question. Suppose that you could build the perfect dog. What would be the key ingredients in your recipe? Well, you definitely want cute. Maybe floppy ears and a curly tail that wags in anticipation whenever you're around. You'd want loyalty and smarts, and you'd definitely want unconditional love. The thing is that you do not need to build this animal. Because for the last 60 years, a dedicated team of geneticists in Siberia have been building it for you. The perfect dog, except as you might guess from the title of the talk, it's not a dog at all. It's a fox, a domesticated fox. They built it in the minus 40 degree temperatures of Siberia, and they built it in the blink of an eye in terms of evolutionary time. A hundredth of the time it took our ancestors to domesticate wolves into dogs. This is my friend, colleague, and co-author, Ludmila Trut. Every day, including today, for the last 60 years, Ludmila has led what is come to be called the Silver Fox Domestication Experiment. For the last seven years, I've been lucky enough to work with Ludmila on the history of science here and to tell this story to as many people as we possibly can. So I'm going to tell you about foxes that will melt your hearts and lick your ears, just like this little guy did five seconds after they put him into my arms in Siberia. More than that, I'm going to tell you about cutting edge science on the study of domestication. The silver fox experiment is the gold standard in understanding domestication of animals. And if you think about it, domestication isn't only inherently interesting as a science topic, but when our ancestors began domesticating both animals and plants, they changed human evolutionary trajectory. If we hadn't done that, the path that we would have taken would have been very, very different. So for 45 minutes now, I'm going to tell you about the results that Ludmila and her team have been gathering for the last six decades. I'll also tell you about some political intrigue that was involved in this study, and perhaps throw in a love story or two as well. So this all starts with Dmitry Belayev. In the late 1930s, Belayev was an undergraduate student at a place called the Ivanova Agricultural Academy outside of Moscow. And when he was there, he studied genetics. And because this was an agricultural college, he had all sorts of interactions with many, many different domesticated species. When he graduated, like almost every Soviet male of that generation, he went off and fought in World War II 
for four years, receiving various medals for bravery. When he returned, he got a position at what was known as the Central Research Laboratory for Fur Breeding Animals in Moscow. And they worked with all sorts of fur breeding animals, but the two most important by far were foxes and mink. And the reason these were the most important was that in the 1940s, the Soviet Union was essentially starving to death. Lots of famines. Fox fur and mink fur were two of the very rare, reliable sources of the Western income they needed coming into the Soviet Union. And it was when Belayev was at this institute that he came up with the idea that would eventually turn into the silver fox domestication study. And here's how it started. Belayev knew from his interactions with domesticated species at the Ivanova Agricultural Academy, from his study of genetics, and from his reading of Charles Darwin's work, he knew that many domesticated animals share a whole suite of common traits. For example, they tend to have floppy ears and curly tails. They tend to have juvenileized facial and body features compared to their ancestors. They tend to have low stress hormone levels. They tend to have all sorts of variation in their fur patterns. And they tend to have longer reproductive periods than their wild ancestors. Not every domesticated animal has every one of those characteristics, but most domesticated animals have most of those characteristics. Today, we refer to that entire suite of things as the domestication syndrome. And Belayev thought about it, and he said, you know, this is really odd. Because our ancestors domesticated animals for lots of different reasons. Some, like horses, we domesticated for transportation. Others, we domesticated as food sources. And yet others, like dogs, we domesticated for both companionship and protection. But no matter what we domesticate them for, they tend to have these characteristics in the domestication syndrome. Floppy ears and curly tails and low stress hormone levels and all of those things. Why? And Belayev's hypothesis went like this. The one thing that our ancestors always needed when they were domesticating a species, regardless if they were domesticating it for protection or transport or food, the one thing they always needed was to be working with animals that were not trying to bite their heads off. And so he hypothesized that the early stages of all animal domestication events involved our ancestors choosing the calmest animals, the tamest ones, the ones that interact most friendly with humans. He further hypothesized that somehow, and he wasn't sure how, but somehow selection for that kind of friendly behavior towards humans was correlated, connected at the genetic level with all the other traits in the domestication syndrome. And he decided he would test these ideas in real time using the foxes that he now knew so well, having worked at the Fur Breeding Institute. And the idea was simple. 
He envisioned an experiment involving hundreds of animals every year. Foxes breed once a year, so every year there's a new generation of foxes. And his idea was he would test hundreds of foxes, and then he would choose the calmest ones, the ones that were most friendly towards humans, and he would preferentially breed those animals, and they would produce the next generation of foxes. Then he would test that next generation, and he would take the ones that were friendliest to humans and preferentially breed them to produce the subsequent generation. And what he would do is he would test, first of all, over time, was he getting calmer, friendlier animals? And just as importantly, if he only selected on behavior, did he start to see those other characteristics in the domestication syndrome appear? In, um, so he has this idea in the late 1940s, early 1950s, and he's thinking about starting a pilot experiment. But he has a problem, and it is a big problem, because any experiment like this in domestication is an experiment in genetics. But at this time, it was illegal to do modern genetics in the Soviet Union. And the reason that it was illegal was this fellow right here, Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko was a charlatan, a fraud, a pseudoscientist who had risen up in the ranks of the scientific establishment in the Soviet Union by claiming that modern Western, what is known as Mendelian genetics, was bourgeois science being spread by wreckers and saboteurs. That in fact, Lysenko claimed a long disproven idea for the biologists in the audience, Lamarckian inheritance. Lysenko said not only was that right, but it was more in line with Soviet philosophy. And so he made up data to make it appear as though he was getting results based on this long disproven idea. He rose up not only in the scientific establishment, but equally importantly, in the political establishment. And he literally became Stalin's right-hand man on science. So this picture comes from a conference where Lysenko has just fi finished one of these fire-breathing speeches where he's called Western geneticists saboteurs and wreckers. And when he's done, Stalin stands up and yells out, bravo, comrade Lysenko. Because of Lysenko, thousands of Soviet geneticists lost their jobs. Before Lysenko, the Soviet Union was, doing, was on the cutting edge of research in genetics. Because of him, thousands of geneticists lost their jobs if they would not stand up and say that Mendelian genetics, Western genetics, was bourgeois science. Hundreds of Soviet geneticists were thrown into jail, their crime being modern geneticists. And in fact, a couple of dozen people were actually murdered by Lysenko's thugs for doing genetics. This is the environment in which Belayev wants to start an experiment in domestication, which of course is an experiment in genetics.
But this is a guy, like I said, who fought in World War II for four years and rose up based on endless acts of bravery and unselfishness. And he wasn't scared of Lysenko. He would be very careful, though, because he knew that the experiment that he was thinking about would involve lots of people. And he didn't want to put those people in danger, but he was going to try. So first, in the early 1950s, he starts a tiny little pilot experiment in Estonia, working with a colleague of his. It only involves choosing a couple of dozen foxes every year based on how calm and friendly they are to humans. And he does this just for a few years. And the results are promising, promising enough that he's waiting for the opportunity to start a full-blown fox domestication experiment. And he gets that opportunity in 1958, when a new institute in biology is built in Siberia in a city called Novosibirsk. And Belayev is offered vice directorship of that institute. So what had happened was the Soviet government had been working with scientists, and they mapped out this very ambitious plan to create a place called Akadem Gordak, or the Academic Village. They cleared out a huge chunk of Siberian forest, and they built two dozen world-class institutes in science, everything from the biology institute that Belayev was going to be at to institutes in chemistry and physics and early computer science. So Belayev now knows that once he moves to Akadem Gordak and takes up the vice directorship, he's going to have the money and the power to start a full-blown experiment where they test hundreds of foxes every year. But what he's not going to have is the time to be the person to lead that experiment day after day after day because of all of his administrative duties. So right before he leaves Moscow to come to Siberia, he goes on a hunt for a young scientist who can lead the experiment. And to do that, he goes to Moscow State University, which is not only one of the uh, finest universities in the world, but it's also one of the most beautiful. And he talks to a colleague of his there who studies animal behavior, and he tells him that he's looking for a young scientist to start this experiment where they'll selectively choose the calmest, tamest animals. They'll see, do they over time get even calmer and tamer? Do they start showing the domestication syndrome traits? One of the people that comes in to interview for the position is Ludmila. She's 25 years old, and she's just finishing her undergraduate degree. And she remembers this interview like it happened yesterday. The first thing that struck her was as soon as she sat down and started talking to Belayev, he treated her as an equal. This was a time when Soviet science was very patriarchal. And here was the vice director of this new institute talking to an undergraduate the way that he would talk to any one of his colleagues. And he tells her what he wants to do. And she's fascinated. She loves the idea of the experiment. She also um, thinks moving to this new sort of scientific nirvana in Siberia might really be interesting. But Belayev says to her, slow down for a minute. First of all, you need to realize that even though now in the late 1950s, Lysenko was not as powerful as he used to be, 
he's still powerful enough that if he decided to make an example, he could throw us into jail. And Ludmila knew that. Everybody who did science knew that. But it was important that Belayev said that to her. And he also said, this is an experiment in evolution, in domestication. It could take 10 years before anything interesting happens. It could take 20 years. It could take your whole life. I've done this little pilot experiment. I think this is going to work, but it might take a very long time. But she was sold on the idea. Belayev liked what he saw. He offered her the position. And six months later, Ludmila and her husband and their two-year-old daughter take a train ride from Moscow to Siberia, which is no easy train ride, to start the full-blown experiment. From day one, Ludmila's motto comes directly from the children's book, The Little Prince, where the fox in that book tells the little prince that you become responsible forever for what you have tamed. So she moves to Akadem Gordok to start the experiment. Now, at that time, Belayev was still working on getting a large enough area and the funds to build an experimental farm where they could do the work right there. But he didn't have that yet. And so Ludmila knew that she would need to start the full-blown experiment somewhere else. And then they would move it up to Akadem Gordok when they got the, uh, the space. So for the first year of her time on the experiment, she basically went around the Soviet Union on trains trying to find the perfect place to start this experiment. There were hundreds of little fox farms around the Soviet Union, all owned by the government, and all there to produce foxes that have shiny fur so they can sell the fox fur to Western women. So Ludmila goes from place to place, and eventually she settles on something called the Lesnoy Fox Farm. It's an overnight 12-hour train ride from where they are in Akadem Gordok. And Ludmila is going to go down there at the start of the experiment for the first few years. She's going to go down to Lesnoy four times a year, sometimes for a couple of months and sometimes for a couple of weeks to start the full-blown experiment. This place, Lesnoy, was gigantic. At any given time, there could be 10,000 foxes there. When Ludmila first went to the director and said what she wanted to do, choose the calmest, tamest animals for an experiment in domestication, he just looked at her like she was crazy. Why would anyone want to waste their time doing that when there's so much money that the government could be getting from breeding for fur? But Ludmila said, Belayev sent me. And that was enough. So the director said, fine, you could test 500 foxes a year. It's not going to bother me. Go ahead and do your little experiment. So Ludmila starts the experiment in 1960. And the protocol at the start goes like this. Every day, 6 AM, she moves from cage to cage. Each fox is in its own cage. And she is going to score each of about 500 foxes twice, once when they're a pup, and then once when they're an adult. And each time, what she does is she scores them as she approaches their cage, as she stands by the closed cage, as she opens the cage door, and as she puts something, either a stick or a piece of food with her hand in a very, very thick glove, into the cage. And she scores the animals 
on a one to four scale where high numbers mean relatively calm and low numbers mean relatively aggressive towards her. So she tests, she tests these 500 or so foxes every year and she chooses the 10% that have the highest calm, calmness scores and she breeds them. And then the next year, when those, she tests the pups and then she tests them when they get older and again, she will take the top 10% and then breed them to produce the next generation of foxes. When she began, Ludmilla said these animals, she described them as fire-breathing dragons. They were essentially wild foxes. Most of them were very, very aggressive towards her. And even the ones that had the highest calmness score, it wasn't as if they were particularly social towards humans. They were just not particularly antisocial towards humans at the start of the experiment. But even after just two generations of choosing the calmest, tamest animals and breeding them, there were a few animals, like this one here, Laska, which means gentle, that, was, that were calm enough that Ludmilla could pick them up and hold them in her arms. So she does this. She's encouraged by that. She thinks the experiment really might work. So she does this year after year. So for five years, she goes down to Lesnoy every year four times and does this process. So by 1965, she has to create a new classification system. There are these class three foxes, and these are animals that are either fleeing from her or being very aggressive. And essentially, they never get selected. Class two foxes are like Laska in that picture. They could be handled, but they never showed any emotional response towards Ludmilla. And then there were what Ludmilla called class one foxes. These animals were friendly towards her, they would whine and whimper when she left, and they would wag their tails when she approached them. They only made up about 1% to 2% of the foxes in 1965. Today, they make up about 80% of the foxes. So another year goes by, and enough change occurs in that next generation that Ludmilla has to create yet another part to this classification, which she refers to as the class 1E, or elite domesticated animals. And here's the way that Ludmilla describes them. So it's the sixth generation, the sixth year. There appeared pups that eagerly sought contact with humans, not only tail wagging, but whining, whimpering, and licking our hands in a dog-like manner. Never ever trained to do that, doing that based on inherent behavior patterns. Not only were the elite domesticated foxes wagging their tails, but in the sixth generation, a few of them were wagging their curly tails. Foxes don't have curly tails, not silver foxes. This is the first of the domestication syndrome traits that is appearing in the experiment. She's only selecting on behavior, but now she's seeing a small number of animals in that elite category 
displaying a curly tail, the first of the domestication syndrome traits. So a couple of more years go by. I mean, we have to get through 60 years here, so um, I'm not going to go through every single year. By 1967, um, Lysenko is gone, so he's no longer a threat. And this is also the year that Belayev has secured the money and the space and has built an experimental farm where they can do the work right outside of Akadem Gordok. This is what it looks like on a nice day in the Siberian winter. Each one of those sheds houses about 50 foxes. At any given time, there are about 700 foxes on this experimental farm. And Ludmilla's going to do the same thing. She's going to select the 10% that are commas. But now she's going to create a control line. These are going to be foxes that are tested exactly the same way. But they are going to, who, who breeds is going to be completely divorced from how they behave towards humans. Right? She gets their scores on how they behave towards her, but she randomly selects foxes in the control line. So now she has something to compare her domesticated line to. Having this fox farm there changed the nature of the experiment dramatically. First of all, it meant that Ludmila and now her team of researchers could work every day with the foxes, not just four times a year for a few weeks or a few months, but every day. Another thing that was really important is that when she was down at Lesnoy, it was an overnight train ride, and Belayev was really busy. If he got down there for one day a year, it was a lot. But now, Belayev could come and interact with the foxes anytime he wanted to. And equally important, if something really important critical happened in the experiment, some new finding. Ludmila could get him there as soon as she wanted. And one of those really important things happened two years later in 1969. And that's Mechta, or dream. Mechta was the first of the domesticated foxes to have floppy ears another one of the traits in the domestication syndrome. So in wild foxes and in the control foxes they had on, in the farm, what happens is foxes do have floppy ears until they're about six weeks old. And then their ears shoot up straight the way that you envision a fox in the wild. At six weeks, Mechta's ears were drooping, floppy. At two months, they were still floppy. At three months, they were still floppy. At four months, they were still floppy. Ludmila brought Belayev out then, and he looked at Dream, and he turned to Ludmila, and he said, what kind of wonder is this? He would take pictures of Dream to conferences where he was now talking about this experiment, not only within the Soviet Union, but beginning to talk about it around the world. And people would literally accuse him of sticking up the picture of a dog puppy to convince them the experiment was working. That's how much Mechta looked like a dog. Again, they only choose on behavior. And now they're seeing not just curly tails, but floppy ears. So the experiment goes on year after year after year. And one of the things Ludmila and her colleagues had always been doing was taking blood samples and measuring all sorts of hormone levels. And what they found 
was by 1974, so 14 to 15 generations into the experiment, their foxes had stress hormone levels that were 50% lower than wild foxes and the control foxes. They also found that by this time, they were getting many, many other new things appearing. Domesticated pups opened up their eyes a day earlier on average than a typical wild fox. The domesticated pups responded to sounds two days earlier on average than wild foxes or control foxes. So Ludmilla is a hardcore trained geneticist, but if, you, if she takes off her geneticist hat and sits down over coffee and cookies with you, which you will be plied with endlessly if you go and visit, if she sits down and talks to you, she will tell you that when this was happening, they used to joke with one another that it almost seemed like the domesticated pups could not wait to start interacting with humans. By this time, they were seeing yet another one of the domestication syndrome traits appear, which is that the domesticated females had a slightly longer breeding season than the control foxes and the wild foxes. That's one of the classic things about domesticated species is they have longer reproductive periods than their wild ancestors. Now, what they were seeing was typically foxes are um, in estrus ready to breed for about 10 days in late January to early February. The domesticated foxes were in estrus for about 14 days. So they started kind of two days earlier and they went two days longer. Nothing dramatic, but significant. They were also seeing lots and lots of variation in the fur color. Yet another one of the domestication syndrome traits coming about strictly by selecting on behavior. They would get all kinds of variation, including this strange white star-shaped pattern that would appear on the foreheads of the elite domesticated foxes. If any of you um, are interested in horses, you know you sometimes see breeds that have this on their forehead, and it's not uncommon in domesticated species. Now, the domesticated foxes were showing it. And on and on in terms of new traits appearing. So at this time, Ludmila and Belayev and their team decided that they would expand the experiment a little bit. Now what they would do is they would continue, they would test them on their behavior, right? And they would continue taking the 10% that were commised in the domesticated line, and they would continue choosing randomly for the control line. But now they would create a third line. And these foxes would be the 10% who were the most aggressive towards humans. And they did this not because they were interested in aggression so much as what they knew that they could, they knew they could use the aggressive foxes to better understand their domesticated foxes. So every year they choose the 10% that are most aggressive. And once you have that new line, there's lots of ways you can use them to better understand your domesticated foxes. There's all kinds of genetics you can do when you cross them and crossbreed them. But I want to focus on a, a, another reason why they did this. 
why they created the aggressive line that still goes on today. It's now 45 years in for this particular, for the, for the aggressive Fox line. So here's one of the main reasons they did this. This is an experiment in genetics, but it's an experiment in a particular type of genetics called behavioral genetics. Because what are you doing? You're selecting strictly based on behavior. Anytime you do an experiment in behavioral genetics, you're always worried that non-genetic factors are influencing your results. So their assumption all along has been all these changes that we've talked about are due to underlying cha genetic changes. But when you do behavioral genetics, you're always worried that things, other non-genetic factors might be influencing your results. So maybe pups learn how to be aggressive based on what they see adults do. So if they're raised by calm animals, they're calm. If they're raised by aggressive animals, they're aggressive. Or maybe the sort of hormonal cocktail that they're exposed to in utero affects how they behave. These are all quote unquote non-genetic factors and you can never be sure whether they're playing a role unless you do an experiment. And Ludmilla decided to run what's known as a transplant experiment or a common garden experiment. In this case, the common garden was going to be the uterus of a fox. So here's what she did. She had pairs of foxes. Each pair had a pregnant domesticated fox and a pregnant aggressive fox. And when they were one week into their pregnancy, Ludmila ran a transplant experiment. Even though no one had ever tried this before in a mammal this big, she worked with veterinarians, she studied, and she learned how to transplant one-week-old developing embryos. So here's what the uterine horn of a pregnant fox looks like. Each one of these is a developing embryo. When these embryos were one week old, tiny, smaller than a drop of water, Ludmila took half of the developing embryos from the uterus of an aggressive fox and swapped them with half of the developing embryos from a domesticated female. And then she took those embryos, oh, sorry, um, she took those embryos and put them into the aggressive female. So now, after she does the swap, each of these pregnant foxes is carrying both their genetic offspring and foster offspring from the other type of female. This is the classic experiment to determine whether or not what you're seeing is due to genetic changes or non-genetic changes. And the way you do that is simple. When the females give birth and the pups are old enough to start moving around, you document how they behave. Do they behave like their genetic mother regardless of what uterus they happen to have been born from? Or do they behave like their foster mother? If they behave like their genetic mother, then you have pretty strong evidence that what you're looking at are genetic changes. But if they behave like their foster mother, then you, you have evidence that non-genetic factors 
are important. So she does this swap and she has seven pairs of foxes like this. And she waits. But of course she has a little bit of a problem, which is that she knows very well which embryo she swapped from uterus to uterus. But how in the world is she going to know which pup is which when the female gives birth? How is she going to know which are the foster ones and which are her genetic offspring? Fortunately, she thought of this problem before she did the transfer. And the foxes themselves provide you with the answer. Because coat coloration, fur coloration in foxes is a genetic trait. So what Ludmila did was she color-coded the parents. And then she could tell which of the offspring were genetic offspring and which weren't. So for example, in some pairs, right, she, in, for example, in some of these cases, she would have mated two dark-colored aggressive individuals and two lighter-colored tame individuals. So then she would know that these individuals, their genetic offspring would have dark fur and their genetic offspring would have lighter fur. And in other cases, she did it the other way around. So she could just look at the offspring and know which was which. So she's sitting and they're waiting. Foxes are pregnant for about eight weeks and she's waiting for them to give birth. And I just want to take one second here to introduce another group of important people in the experiment. There's Ludmila and all of her science colleagues, but there's a whole group of folks that they refer to as the workers. Anytime you have 700 large animals, somebody has to feed them. Somebody has to clean their cages. Somebody has to make sure that everything's going okay on a day-to-day -day basis. Those people tended to be poor women from the local villages. They didn't understand the micro details of the experiment, but they knew it was important science, both from talking with Ludmila and also from all of the VIPs that would come and visit. And they often went way above and beyond the call of what their salary called for. They, they, they were very vested in, in the experiment. And it was the workers who first discovered when those females gave birth. They ran to Ludmila's office with wine and cake, and they had a big party. And Ludmila then, when the pups were old enough, about three weeks, was right there documenting the way that they behaved. And I'm going to show you the results from a, an aggressive female who gave birth to a clutch of about six pups. And the results you're going to see hold true in general for the aggressive females, and they also hold true for the tame females, the basic results. And I'm going to let Ludmila describe it in her own words. It was fascinating. The aggressive mother had both foster offspring and her genetic offspring. Her foster tame offspring were barely walking. But if there was a human standing by, they were already rushing to the cage doors and wagging their tails and licking her hand. Then the mother would punish her foster tame offspring for, I love this phrase, such improper behavior. She growled at them, grabbed them by their neck, threw them to the back of the cage. What did they do but get up? with their tails wagging, walk toward the cage, and try to lick Ludmilla or whoever's hand. They behaved exactly the way that their domesticated mother behaved, not the way their foster mother behaved. Right? 
Now, if you look at the genetic offspring from that same female and that same clutch she just gave birth to, here's the way that Ludmilla describes what she saw. They retained their dignity, growling aggressively, the same as their mothers, and running to their nests. They behave like their genetic mother as well. And when you look at the pups that the tame, the domesticated females gave birth to, again, the pups behave like their genetic mother, not like their foster mother, really suggesting that the changes that they were seeing were due to underlying genetic changes. OK, so the experiment is going better than Ludmila or Belayev could ever have dreamed of. It was going, they were, they were finding all these results in a relatively short amount of time. By the mid-1970s, that's 15 generations. That's nothing from an evolutionary perspective. So at this point, Ludmila goes to Belayev with this audacious idea. She says, there's a tiny little house on the experimental farm. I want to see just how far down the path of domestication my foxes have come. And what I'm going to do is I want to move into the house with one of the domesticated females and live with them the way that we live with our dogs and the way that our ancestors would have lived with proto-dogs while we're domesticating them. And I'm going to take notes on everything this female does to see how they behave when they're interacting with a human. Yes, it's just a sample size of one. It's an anecdote. But maybe it'll tell us something interesting. So Belayev loves the idea. He tells her to go ahead. And Ludmila has the perfect fox whose name is Pushinka, which means tiny ball of fuzz. When Pushinka was just three weeks old, she was already the friendliest of all the domesticated foxes in the 15 years of the experiment. And Ludmila knew that she was going to be the one to move into the house with her. Here's the only known picture we have of Pushinka being petted by Belayev. Now, initially, Ludmila was thinking she would move in with Pushinka when she was very young. But then she decided to wait. She said, I'm going to wait until Pushinka is a year old. That's when females are ready to breed. I'm going to breed her with one of the elite males. And then I'm going to wait until she's about a week away from giving birth. And then we'll move into the house. Then, not only will I be able to take data on everything Pushinka does to see just how domesticated they are, how do they behave with humans when they live with us, but now I can also take that same data on her pups, who from the moment they're born will be interacting with humans the way that dog pups do. So the house where she lives still stands today. This is what it looks like from the outside. So this, the experiment was done in 1974 and 1975. Here's what the house still looks like today from the outside. Here's what it looks like from the inside. It's rubble in the inside. The reason I'm showing you a house full of rubble is that the first time I visited was in 2012. There was three feet of snow on the ground. It was minus 40 degrees, and so there were three feet of snow on the ground. Ludmila is about four and a half feet tall. She was 80 years old. She insisted upon taking me to the house and walking me through each one of these rooms full of rubble, pointing out, here's where my bed used to be, and Pushinka used to jump up and sleep with me. Here's where the pups used to play ball. Here's where they would run around off the leash and, and respond to their names. 
So they moved in a week later, April 6th, 1974. Pushinka gives birth to six pups, including this little guy, Pushak, which is the male version of Tiny Ball of Fuzz. And Ludmila's taking notes on everything that they do. So, they, so the pups are born on April 6th. And, and she's living there 24 hours a day, virtually, seven days a week, occasionally going home for one night and having one of her friends stay there. So they're living month after month after month like this. And they're living for three months, and it's now July. And in those three months, lots of people would come into the house. Belayev used it whenever anybody, whenever a VIP was visiting, and not just a VIP scientist, but there are stories Ludmila tells of Russian generals from World War II coming to visit and just basically melting when one of the pups would jump into their lap and turn over and wait for a belly rub. Everybody would come visit. And in those three months, never did Pushinka or any of the pups behave in an aggressive way towards a human being. And then something happened on the night of July 15th, three months in, that changed Ludmila forever. So this picture of the house is taken in the winter. But in July, in Siberia, it can get very, well, relatively speaking, it can get very hot. It can be about 35 degrees Celsius. Right? So in the summer, Ludmila would sit on a little bench on the other side of the house every night around when sunset, and she would be reading a book. And Pushinka would be lying by her side, and Ludmila would be petting her the way that you would pet your dog if they were just sitting by your side and you were reading a book. On the night of July 15th, something happened, which was this. Every evening, a night watch person would come around just to make sure everything was fine on the experimental fox farm. And there was a new night watch person that night that neither Ludmila or Pushinka knew. And this person was approaching relatively quickly in a way that maybe you might interpret as being somewhat aggressive. Ludmila looked down and she could not believe what was happening. Pushinka jumped up, bolted towards the night watch person, and began barking at them exactly the way that a guard dog would bark if it was protecting its master. The incredible thing is foxes do not bark. She had never in the 15 years of the experiment heard a fox bark like this. And her immediate thought was, Pushinka is protecting me. But then she, she stopped herself and said, wait a minute. You know, I'm a scientist. I know how easy it is to fall into this trap to think that animals are behaving the way we would if we were in that situation. But then something else happened, which was that Ludmila walked over to the guard and started talking to them in a very calm manner. And as soon as Pushinka saw that, she stopped barking. She gently walked back over to the bench, lay down, and waited for Ludmila to come over and start petting her. Is it possible that Pushinka wasn't protecting Ludmila? Of course, it's possible. But she had, Pushinka had shown her just how far down the path of domestication her foxes had come. And you become responsible forever for what you have tamed. And Ludmila will tell you from that night in 1974, she knew that she could never leave the experiment. And she never has.
So let me just quickly tell you about a couple of other things that have happened over the last couple of decades. I mentioned to you before that um, in the 70s, they had a little bit of evidence that the domesticated females had a ex slightly extended breeding season the way that we see in other domesticated species. But in the early 1980s, something really remarkable happened. In 1983, a few of the elite domesticated females went into estrus. They were ready to breed a second time during the year. Not only in the normal January to February time period, but a second time in September. Ludmila found a few elite males who would breed with them, and a handful, I think about four elite females, got pregnant and gave birth to a second clutch of pups. Absolutely unheard of in foxes. Just think about how radical the changes to your reproductive system have to be to go from being able to reproduce once a year to twice a year. Now she had a few of the elite females that were doing that. All as the result of selecting on behavior and only behavior. By the 80s and 90s, Ludmilla was working with people who had very sophisticated devices that could take detailed facial and body measurements of the domesticated foxes. And she was finding that the domesticated foxes were beginning to look eerily dog-like. So if you think about a fox in the wild, one of the things you think of is this very long, pronounced snout. The domesticated foxes have a rounder, shorter, more dog-like, juvenileized face. What's more, another thing you might think of when you think of a, fo a fox running around in the wild is they have these very thin legs that they're running around on. The domesticated foxes are chunkier and they're lower to the ground. Again, strictly as the result of selection on behavior. Not surprisingly, time goes on, the molecular genetic revolution is going on, and Ludmila wants to understand what's going on at the molecular genetic level. And fortunately, she's approached by a woman by the name of Anna Kukova, who had specialized in dog genetics. And Anna said, let's work together and see if we can understand some of the underlying molecular genetic changes that have happened as a result of this domestication that you've been doing for, at that point, about 50 years. And they've done lots and lots of things. And in fact, over the last six months, there have been papers in Nature and PANS and all that coming out. But I just want to show you, just want to talk about one of their early findings to get a, a general point across. So one of the first things they asked was this. We've got all of these changes that have occurred in our, in our domesticated foxes. At the molecular genetic level, are those changes kind of spread out all over the fox genome? Are they some on this chromosome and some on that chromosome and some over here and some over there? Or are the molecular genetic changes kind of localized in hotspots? And what they found was that many, not by any means all, but many of the underlying molecular genetic changes, changes in allele frequencies, changes in gene expression for the biologists in the audience, were associated with one fox chromosome, fox chromosome number 12. So that's kind of interesting. It, it's localized. There's, this, it's, there's a hot spot, and there's probably one other they discovered recently on another chromosome, but fox, 
because chromosome 12 is a hotspot. That's interesting. But what's more interesting is that at the same time they were doing this, other people who were working on dog genomics were doing the exact same thing with dogs, asking whether or not the changes associated with wolves to dog domestication was localized in hotspots or was it kind of spread all over the genome. So foxes and dogs have very different numbers of chromosomes. Fox chromosome 12 is essentially spread across three dog chromosomes. These are the homologous chromosomes for the biologists in the audience. And lo and behold, it's on one of these dog chromosomes that many of the molecular genetic changes associated with domestication is located. So even at the deepest level, it looks like they really are mimicking this process of domestication of wolves to dogs, but now with foxes. Um, I mentioned that there are a bunch of papers that have come out recently, and they've, they've even begun documenting particular genes that might be especially important in the process. OK, so here's the last example I want to give you. Um, this is maybe my favorite trait that has appeared in the domesticated foxes. But before I tell you what it is, I want to tell you why it's my favorite. The first reason is this trait did not appear in the domesticated foxes until like 10 years ago, maybe 15 at the most. That means the experiment was going on somewhere between 45 and 50 years before this trait emerged. If any one of us in the audience worked on a system for 30 years, we would start receiving lifetime achievement awards, and we would not have come clo near enough, close enough to, uh, to, to find what they uncovered here. This is the poster child for why long-term experiments are important. The other reason that this is my favorite trait is that it is hard to imagine a more perfect trait for a domesticated pet-like species to have. So what is the trait? Well, in the early 2000s, a woman by the name of Svetlana Gogolova, who was at Moscow State University, Ludmila's old alma mater, approached Ludmila and said, my lab, we study vocalizations, the sounds that animals make. And I'd like to come there and study the vocalizations of the domesticated foxes and the aggressive foxes and the control foxes. And Svetlana learned what everybody who works with Ludmila learns, which is that if she thinks you can help understand the domesticated foxes, she will work with you and she will work with you so quickly that it will make your head spin. And Svetlana and Ludmila began working together. And Svetlana, over the next few years, taped 2,000 hours of the vocalizations that these foxes made. And it turns out there are about eight distinct sounds that are made by these foxes. If you look across the domesticated, the control, and the aggressive, there's about eight sounds. There are two that only the domesticated foxes make. And I want to focus on one of them. All the domesticated foxes make this. None of the other foxes make it. And all of the domesticated foxes make it from when they're very, very young. And here is what that sound is. 
There is no non-human sound that is closer to human laughter than that sound. They've mapped it out on a spectrogram. It's the closest sound we have to human laughter. So now, not only do you have incredibly cute animals that are going to lick your hand, okay, that look like dogs, but you have animals that will laugh with you when you are laughing. And of course, they'll laugh with you when you're not laughing because that has nothing to do with what the sound they're making. Right? Now, it's almost too perfect for a pet, for a domesticated animal. Because this has only appeared recently, it's the trait that they understand the least. But they're working on understanding it more. So 60 years into the experiment, if you ask Ludmilla what her hopes and dreams are, what you'll get is, well, I got a six-hour answer. I'll give you the one-minute version of that. Um, the first thing that Ludmila will tell you is that I hope that it's possible to register them as a new pet species. So there are actually about a couple of dozen of these foxes that live in people's houses all over the world as pets. They're extremely expensive, but all the money goes to the experiment. The thing is that, technically speaking, they are still considered an exotic species. There is a process that you have to go through at the international level to get an animal classified as a true house pet. They're working on it, but it's very complicated, and they haven't been able to get that yet. What that means is that one of the reasons they only have a couple of dozen of these foxes living in people's houses is that the rules vary dramatically. So there'll be one set of laws that might apply in the UAE, another set of rules that apply in the United States, another set of rules that apply in France. It differs from country to country. It also differs, in, for example, in the United States, it differs from state to state, city to city, subdivision and area by area, right? So that's because they're exotics. Once they get them classified as a true domesticated house species, then they can put them in houses anywhere. And there are plenty of foxes in this experiment that they could put a couple of hundred of them into houses every year and still have the experiment go on. And that's one of their goals, because they truly have created a new pet species here. The other thing that Ludmila will tell you is, one day I'll be gone, but I want my foxes and the experiment to live forever. I do. I hope you do, and I appreciate you taking the time to come out and hear this tonight. Thank you very much.